People come to parenthood in many different ways. Alexandra Collier's pathway was not quite how she expected it to be. She was living her dream life at one point, working in Brooklyn, lovely partner. But one day she woke up with this visceral certainty that she wanted a baby. He didn't. Ultimately, she decided to become a solo parent, as a growing group of Australian women have. But it wasn't easy. Alexandra Colley has written about her decision and its impacts in a new book called Inconceivable, Heartbreak, Bad Dates and Finding Solo Motherhood. Alexandra, great to talk with you again. Thanks for having me, Hilary. It's a pleasure. Tell us what you thought your future was going to look like back in those heady days in New York. I think I thought that my future would look like every other woman's future, which is that I would grow up and get married and have babies with my partner. Uh, I think little girls in particular are fed this sort of romantic narrative that it's inevitably going to happen, that you'll sort of meet your prince and, you know, or meet your person, it doesn't have to be a man, and have a family together. But that was not the case for me. Well, yeah, you you realised that in your body that you wanted this baby. How strong was that baby hunger when it hit you? It was like being possessed by the devil. It was really strong and visceral, as you said. It's a great word for it. It felt like an actual physical longing that I couldn't fight. And ultimately, I left a very good and happy relationship because that desire was too strong. And I was heading towards my late 30s at that point, and I knew that if I waited around for my partner to want to have a baby, it might be too late for me because, of course, we're on a narrow, sort of limited reproductive timeline as women. Yeah, and you were 37 at this point, so that when window I left, was yeah. pretty sharp and pointy. <laughs> yeah. How long did it take you, though, within yourself to, to come round to the idea of, I can do this by myself, I want to do this by myself? It took me a few years to make that decision. I sort of boarded the dating um, roller coaster, the online sort of hellscape of <laughs> dating, which a lot of people have experienced and can, you know, really relate to in Inconceivable in this book. And I was convinced, because everyone else was convinced as well, that romance would win, that the romantic narrative would win out. And so I was really invested in that. And I wanted that to work out because I wanted to have a baby with someone else. That seemed like the far easier option, of yeah. course. Um, as any parent will know, you know, shouldering the load of parenting on one's own is, you know, a lot more challenging than doing it with someone else, hopefully, although not always, based on some reports that I hear. Certainly our Facebook page <laughs> bears that out. <laughs> yeah. So I think I was concurrently pursuing this fertility path whilst dating. And I think I say that a lot to women who ask about this path. It's you don't have to shut down one option. You can sort of go and have an appointment with a fertility specialist and find out what your options are. I think knowledge can be power in that way. Um, so when you talked about this idea to family and friends in the early stages, you got a fair bit of judgment. What were some of the things people said to you? Well, part of the reason I wrote Inconceivable because was this memoir was because I did feel that I hit against this wall of opposition within my own family who have ultimately come round now that I've had a baby, spoiler alert. And they had this attitude that having a baby on your own was selfish, that it was sort of robbing a child of a father. And, you know, I I understood that in a way or I, I heard it very strongly as sort of the prevailing attitude that society has. So I found it very hard to overcome that. So a lot of this book is about me wrestling with that notion and that idea and what it really means to have a child. And is it selfish to do it on one's own? But I found ultimately that couples aren't, you know, judged for being selfish, for having children on their own. They're not sort of given the same um, 
judgment that solo parents are. And the solo parents that I know have gone into this with such a level of intentionality and deliberate sort of conscientiousness because they love and want this child so badly. And I think ultimately that's what every child needs, a parent who really loves and wants them. Margaret's texted in saying, what do these women do to have good male role models in their child's life? I mean, it's interesting how the people who gave you that comment about depriving the child of a father, I I don't hear that they were saying uh, lesbians shouldn't have kids together. It's like having a second parent, perhaps, that's the issue. But on the male role models issue, is that something that's on your mind that you think about when it comes to your child? I I do think about it. And luckily, I have um, a brother who's very involved in my child's life. My father is really fantastic with my son. And, you know, we've got family, friends, other kids, dads are great. And I think there are many ways for men to be involved in children's lives without having to be fathers themselves necessarily. We're speaking with Alexandra Collier. Her book is called Inconceivable. Alex, when you write about, you know, the the different pathways available for people to find a donor, what was it like for you kind of deciding how to how to find that other half of your child's genetic heritage? It was a really interesting path. Initially, I thought, oh, I'll find a friend who wants to be a sperm donor. And I was talking to friends who made offers, generously offered to, you know, um, be a sort of sperm donor rather than a father per se. But I found that ultimately taking sperm from someone that I knew would mean that we would have a kind of marriage of sorts. And that was almost the same as trying to find a man to have a baby with. So I was sort of faced with all the same issues. We would be in this sort of long-term relationship and there was no way to predict how that person would then react to having an actual baby or child in the world and what their involvement would be. Yes. The texts coming in on this are really interesting. One says, I had a child within a marriage, no good male role model there. Another says, I can't imagine raising a child and a male partner. This is from Laura in New South Wales. (laughs) My experience is having a partner takes energy, energy that a child could use more than an adult. And I have to say that is a bit of a theme amongst the people on our Facebook page too, you know, that you've got to put a certain amount of energy into relationships. And the, the, the subtext that I'm seeing is that with heterosexual relationships, women feel they have to put more energy into the man than is fair. Uh, Other texts, I'd love to hear how the single mums cope with the physical labour, not the actual birth labour, but the hard work of having children. I'd like real practical tips on this. And Alex, I don't want to have you to, you know, represent the entirety of (laughs) single mums by choice, but how has it worked for you? I think it's crucial to have a community of people around you who can help you. So whether that's your blood family who live nearby or whether that's your chosen family that you cultivate and spend time with, you really do need help. There's no way of parenting completely alone. It's sort of a misnomer, really, solo parent, because actually there are my parents who are helping me out, my brother. Of course, I have babysitters. I have friends. And yeah, the sheer physical and you know also emotional labour of it requires more than one person. But yep. that's how we should all be raising our children, really, in a village. Yeah, yep, that is the ideal. Do you feel that there has been a shift in societal values around parenting? Do you feel that that, that sense of judgment that you encountered in the early stages might be shifting? Definitely. I think there are changing attitudes towards non-traditional families. And I found that once I had a child, people's judgment sort of evaporated. Once you're a mother, nobody sort of cares how the baby arrived or how it got there or whether it has another parent. Everyone loves a baby, ultimately. And I think queer families have been fighting this fight a lot longer than, say, straight single women in that they've had to prove that, you know, 
it's not about whether there's a father in the picture. Ultimately, what's important for a child to flourish is the presence of like loving quality relationships. And the studies bear that out. Well, and when you talk about having a village and having supports around you, you've been part of uh, groups, uh, solo mums groups as well. What do you hear from them about why they've chosen this path? Because I imagine there are, you know, different different life stories, different reasons. The, women come to this, you know, place of motherhood from so many different you know, angles, which I think is really interesting because I, when I met them, I was so struck by how many women were so self-possessed and knew that they wanted a baby even more than they wanted to sort of attain the goal of a relationship. And I wished that I had sort of had that self-possession when I was in my late 30s after my, you know, breakup happened and just sort of gone straight into it. Of course, it takes the time that it takes to make a decision in life and you can't rush that. But I mean, there are women in their 20s doing this. There are women in their you know, early 30s doing this. There are women in their early 40s doing this. It's, there's a really diverse range of people who are coming to this place of solo parenthood, I think. Yeah, indeed. We've been speaking with Alexandra Collier. Her book is called Inconceivable, uh, and it's it's a, about her journey towards single parenthood, but much more too. It's it's a look at the landscape that that happens in. The subtitle is called Heartbreak, Bad Dates, and Finding Solo Motherhood. And, um, and as we've been hearing, there's a huge range of experiences of solo mums by choice. Flick Gray joins us now. She's a queer solo parent. Welcome to you, Flick. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Tell us how the idea of family that you were raised with shaped your thoughts about how you might make a family. Yeah, it's so interesting hearing Alexandra's story because in some ways it's just so similar, but also, yeah, different. I, I just didn't grow up with that sense of there being a particular future for myself. Um, three out of my four grandparents were solo parents two of them due to the war, one of them, I don't know why, she came out from Wales by herself and there's a bit of a, you know, family mystery there. Um, my mum was a solo parent and I really relate. She had a partner who was um, definitely less useful than, you know, for me it's I'm glad it's just me I have to look after and my child. Um, I'm not having, you know, another person that is dependent on me and draining my energy but also being queer I've just had this world of possibilities opened up in a way that I'm just really proud of the diversity of families out there and to find my own way was part circumstance, part choice, part um, imagination. Well, and yeah. I understand too that you had a really interesting experience early on dating someone with a child before you'd thought about having your own family uh, that put into perspective some of the, the implications of the choices about how to become a family. How did that shape things for you? Yeah, so I was in my early 20s and fell in love with someone who had a four-year-old child. And I realised in hindsight, I think what I fell in love with was her parenting there was just something so tender and fierce and proud. And she'd found her sperm donor in the lesbian press. Apparently they used to have advertisements at the back of the newspaper. Um, but it actually went really badly for her in terms of that relationship because it was so unregulated and he decided he wanted to have custody of the child. So I learnt from that that um, the legal protections are just really, really important for me. And a bit like Alexandra, I did scan my scan my friendships for, you know, is there anyone around who might be a, you know, part of this journey alongside me? Um, but I did go the um, clinic recruited donor 
But I'll also say in my in the between 2005 and 2009, I was in a same-sex relationship and we talked about having children. And yeah, it, it just wasn't legally an option for us the way it was when I, you know, started to have a child by myself. So how does that, I mean, how does that complicate things? If you, you know in your heart that this is what you want, but the law says you can't have it, where does that leave you? It was absolutely gruelling because I was on Centrelink. I was studying for a PhD and every now and again we'll be on Centrelink. And Centrelink didn't recognise our relationship for the first three and a half years. And then for the last six months, all of a sudden, they did. And so I'm still legally separated from that relationship, you know, 14 years later, um, in a way that is just so painful to have this sense of invisibility and then suddenly being you know like it's and I feel like that's been queer people's history and I did really want to shout out to the trans men and you know non-binary folk and just all the diversity of humans navigating this um you know it's been a really really tough road to say we can also be parents we can contribute you know we can contribute to children in a way that is of value and even that idea of having male role models i really aspire for my child to have trans male role models and non-binary role models and, you know, all sorts of strong people in my child's life. Yeah, I think it can be quite heteronormative. The whole, like becoming a parent has been an incredibly heteronormative experience. I think I get read as straight um, and there's just so many pressures to conform to a certain narrow ideal of family in this way that it's about panicking about children um, you know, there's a whole history of queer people being framed as dangerous to children, which is just so far from the truth, as Alexandra was saying, like the intentionality of creating our families. And I did also just want to shout out to my sperm donor who I've since met and he's part of our family in a, you know, family of choice created kind of way, but he was actually part of changing the laws in 2010 um, well before I met him. Um, I met him after my child was born. Um, but, yeah, I feel like there's a really strong history of people having to fight to have our families be welcome in this world. Yes, Alexandra writes in her book that at the same time the law was changed to ease restrictions on single women and queer people using fertility technology, the law was also brought in that you had to have a police check and a working with yeah, children check. I had to have a yeah, I had to have a police check so that I could have a child, which was really particularly galling because I know, you know, other people in my networks who are are actually a danger to children and they didn't have to have a criminal check, a police check, you know, so it's actually especially galling. that, And that, that's been changed, though. We don't need to get a police check anymore, thank goodness, but that was very, very painful. But to be honest, the whole IVF process is so, it's so complex that it was just one of so many hoops to jump through. Yeah, that was absolutely worth it in the end, but it is not an easy path. Well, and you know, some of the questions coming through on our text line, Flick Gray, are you know, how do you manage? How how do you deal with the the labour, the finances? I mean, these are things that are difficult in two person relationships that are raising kids. How have you navigated those issues? So I'll also add, I've got a disability. I'm neurodivergent, and also my baby was born during the peak of Melbourne lockdowns. So I wholeheartedly agree with what Alexandra said about it takes a village. 
I did not have a village. It was utterly, utterly gruelling to be a new solo parent under lockdown. But what I will say is that people have children in all sorts of adverse situations. You know, I kept reminding myself there are refugees right now having children. There are people, you know, in Syria having babies. Um, People had babies during Hurricane Katrina, during the floods in Lismore. You know, it's the human condition is uncertain. You know, uncertainty and adversity happens. There is also a phenomenon of the brain becoming rewired um, that pregnant people there's actually a phenomenon of our brains rewiring so that we can be more well-equipped for the challenges of new parenting. And I would say doing it solo, it's kind of a trial by fire, but my brain, you know, I now have the ability to hyper, hyper prioritise in a way that I would not wish upon anyone to go through <laughs> that. Yeah. Having a, a it, child and running a household is a bit like running a small business, isn't it? It's quite different to having a, and, an intimate relationship. And you should not have to do it solo, solo, solo. And I do think there's degrees of solo, you know, as Alexandra was saying, she's got, you know, family involved, friends, all of that. I think we're all in some way solo, you know, even um, partnered um, parents speak about, you know, the loneliness and the isolation. And, you know, I've got economic security. I've got all sorts of factors that make it less difficult Um you know, do you know what I mean? There's all sorts of resources that people have and we've all got different configurations of that. Yes. Um, yeah. It's yeah. difficult though to yeah. answer to the text. It's, it's, yes. it's not easy. Yeah. Like having COVID being solo, that was not fun. But, yeah. you know, you, you, you survive in all sorts of creative ways that sometimes look you just are glad that no one's watching sometimes. Yep. Yeah, that's true of all parents, I think. Flick Gray, yeah. so great to talk to you today. Thanks very much for joining the program. Thank you. Flick Gray is a, another solo mum by choice, queer parent with a different perspective to add to the mix today. This is Life Matters. My name's Hilary Harper and you've been hearing these stories of a growing trend in Australia uh, of women choosing to become parents by themselves. We were listening to Alexandra Collier's story before and you can read more about that in the book Inconceivable. But let's find out how this is playing out in fertility clinics. Dr Melissa Cameron is a fertility specialist with Melbourne IVF. Melissa, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Hilary. It's a pleasure. How many more women are choosing to go down this path? Do we have numbers? Yeah, we've certainly had big increases steadily since about 2015 or so. Um, More recently at Melbourne IVF, we're noticing about a 20% increase in single women each year. Um, We did have a big number coming through in around 2020, and I think that was when we were at the peak of lockdown and you know, everyone's priorities shifted, um, plans changed. And I think for a lot of my patients, fertility, this became the time. We couldn't do much else. So fertility was something that they wanted to pursue. There's an idea that uh, women are putting off babies to focus on career. What's your sense of that from the women that you talk to? I think that's a little bit of a myth, to be honest. Um, I think Alexandra's story of being in a relationship where there might be conflicting ideas or expectations regarding fertility, um, you know, I see a lot of patients that just aren't able to find the right person to have a baby with. Uh, That is by far a more common reason for going down the single parenthood uh, pathway in my experience than, you know, I see not even a handful of people that consciously say, I'm putting this off from 
a point of view of my career. Um, what I am noticing in recent times is, you know, with increased cost of living, um, people are needing to put off, just purely from a practical point of view of having to have somewhere to somewhere to live and having a, you know, a stable job. Um, that is starting to become a little bit more of a factor as well. Which is pretty sad, really, when you think about it, the idea that you're, you know, the, the thing that's closest to a lot of people's hearts in when they look back on their lives is something that's mediated by economics. Dr. Melissa Cameron, what are women's options if they want to go down this path? What are the pros and cons of various pathways? So if you're wanting to become a single parent, um, as both Alexandra and Flick mentioned, there is the choice of coming through a clinic and using a, a, a donor through the clinic. Um, so these donors have been recruited by the clinic. They've gone through a program of counselling and various medical checks. Um, you know, Basically, we want to make it as safe as possible for any recipient of donor sperm and, and to get as much information about the donors as possible. Uh, the alternative is using a a private donor, so someone you know or that you've met, um, which you know can be a private arrangement. And I think Flick did mention before that you know there are there are negatives and positives of both of them, but um, we do have concerns, particularly about safety, medical safety, infectious disease safety, also personal safety of you know meeting up with with people outside of a clinic. Uh, we were talking about the options for women. What about um, men, trans men, or other genders? Are there options open to them if they want to pursue single parenthood? Yes, certainly. Um, I'm seeing an increasing number of trans men and non-binary folk coming through using our donor sperm program. Um, for cisgendered single men, um, they can also come through the program. They will obviously, you know, they mostly have sperm, so they do need donor eggs and they will need a surrogate as well. So it is much more complex um, and much more challenging for a cisgendered man to come through uh, because they, they basically need more of the ingredients to make a baby um, but I'm certainly seeing increasing increasing inquiries around those you know from all of those diverse backgrounds we should acknowledge too that the for women the chances of getting pregnant do drop dramatically after about 35 what are the chances of a successful pregnancy via assisted reproductive technology if you're over 35? Oh, look, that's a massive question. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it does steadily decline. Um, overall, if you look at, it depends on whether you're looking at insemination, so putting sperm inside the uterus versus IVF, and everyone's individual circumstance needs to be taken into account because uh, even though sperm may be a major part of what you're missing in those recipe to make a baby, there may be other gynecological conditions like endometriosis or fibroids, um, polycystic ovary, there's numerous conditions that can also contribute to challenges in fertility and they can occur regardless of your relationship status. Really fascinating learning about some of the aspects of this. Just finally, Dr Melissa Cameron, your job is to try to get women to the stage of getting pregnant. Do you hear much from them afterwards about how it's gone, where they find that support and how they're managing that? What I would have to say is by the time they come to see me, um, again, as Flick and, and Alexandra mentioned, um, this is very much not a spare-of-the-moment decision. I find a lot of my patients have already put a lot of um, supports in place. They've, they've rallied their troops. They've got their village starting to form. Um, I'm mostly the people I see are people coming back for second or more babies. Um, and, yeah, they, they definitely have challenges and by no means is it straightforward like any parenting joint journey. Um, but I do find that they they seem to be, for the most part, thriving. Um, you know, we all have our ups and downs with parenting, but I don't 
feel that overall their experience and certainly their children's experience is any you know, I'm not trying to not any different I mean the children are very loved and very wanted and the, the children that I see seem to be thriving. Dr Melissa Cameron fertility and IVF specialist based in Melbourne and you also heard from queer solo mum Flick Gray and Alexandra Collier author of Inconceivable Heartbreak Bad Dates and Finding Solo Motherhood. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.